Well, food and holiday food trends is the topic on this edition of MSU Today, and it's great to welcome three MSU-related foodies to the program to discuss it. We have Helen Veit with us, who's an associate professor of history, and Cheryl Kirschenbaum, host Serving Up Science on PBS, which is produced right here at WKAR by Brant Wells and his team. And Chef Kurt Kwiatkowski is back. Spartan Nation probably remembers Kurt, who was so involved in the, the change of this dorm food and the food at Spartan Stadium. Recently retired to take on a better position, not a better position, a different <laughs> position at Gordon Food yeah. Service. So yeah. great to have you all here. So I introduced you, but Helen, you first a little bit about your interest in food, where you come at this conversation sure. from. Sure. I am uh, an associate professor of American history in the MSU history department, and my specialty is food. So I work on food in American history, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. So pretty modern. In fact, I'm interested in the modernization of food, how we got to eat the way we do. One thing I always tell my students is that the way we eat today is very strange. Most people in history ate extremely differently than we do. And what's so interesting about that is that most of us tend to assume that the way we eat is normal because our tastes and our preferences and what we find disgusting, that feels very intuitive to most of us. And coming to realize that most of it is actually learned is, is pretty fascinating. It opens up a lot of different questions. And Chef Kurt, tell me how you got interested <laughs> in cooking and food and, and sort of where you come at it today. Oh, wow. Where does it start? You know, I think, you know, the, that first food memory uh, is being on a step stool with my grandmother and having that smell of chicken noodle soup kind of wafting in the air and trying to understand how does something so delicious come out of this one pot and just be so involved with it. And then on my dad's side of the family, family meat, you know, every time we were there, my grandmother was in the kitchen and making food in these these smells and some of them good and some of them bad or just <laughs> maybe not bad, just like abrasive. Because I remember walking into the back of my grandmother's, like the, the, the back door into the kitchen and they were grinding horseradish mm -hmm. and it was almost like tear gas. <laughs> and as a kid, it was like, ah, but I still have that food memory. And today I love horseradish. Um, so I, I have this thing that I, I feel that food brings people together. And I love how um, we can have discussions about it and we break bread and, and how it just brings people together is something that's always just sat really close to my heart. Very applicable to the holiday season. Mm -hmm. To Cheryl, how did you get involved with Serving Up Science? Tell us a little bit about the program and some things you've learned. Absolutely. And it's such a treat to be here with a group of foodies. <laughs> Um, so my career has centered on the relationships between science and society. So uh, how do we connect with each other and what can we learn about ourselves and our world through essentially science and culture? But what better topic for that than centering it all around food? Because food, is, as Chef Kurt was just saying, it brings families and communities together. It shapes us on a personal level. It impacts our environment. It impacts our future. And so um, that is a great way to tell stories about, you know, who we are as individuals and as a culture and as a global society. Uh, so at Michigan State University, I work on serving up science. And the idea is to cultivate a culture where more of us understand where our food comes from and how it impacts our world. Helen, how about a little bit on traditions and holiday food traditions over the years, how they've developed, where they're going, do you think? Yeah, so as we get into the holiday season, a lot of us are thinking about food more and more, which is, <laughs> which is a good thing, I think. Um, 
you know, Americans used to eat together a lot more than we do today. And there were cultural reasons for that, but there were also logistical reasons. One of the big reasons was that in, in previous decades and especially previous centuries, there, there wasn't a lot of preserved food. If you, if you were going to consume food, it was food that had been recently cooked. And the time to eat it together was when it was recently cooked and people would gather at that moment. So there was this kind of, you know, technological infrastructural um, mechanism that just got people together at meals. Now, when food is ready to eat, off the shelves, microwavable, instantly edible, you can eat it in your car, you can go through a fast food drive through There's really no longer a logistical or a, a technological reason to eat together. And I think that's that's significant. We, I think something more than digestion happens when people gather together to share food. Um, the, the sort of conviviality, the, the happiness, the, there's something deeply social, I think deeply human about what goes on. I mean, cooking is something uniquely human. It's hard to point to anything else more uniquely human than cooking, even language, even tool making. Some animals do those things, but animals don't really cook. That's a human thing, eating together. Um, and holidays are a time when we do that. And a lot of us cherish holiday meals for that reason. It's a time when the family comes together. Um, people also have a lot of stress around the holidays because putting together these big feasts is labor intensive. It takes a lot of work. It takes planning. Of course, sometimes it's fun, but it's almost always stressful for the people doing it. Um, but, you know, I don't know that I see that changing. I don't know that I see fa holiday family meals going away anytime soon. I think that they're so important to so many people um, and they, they, they feed something in us that's that's more than physical. And how did something like turkey become associated with Thanksgiving, for example? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, there's there's good reason to think that at, you know, the first Thanksgiving in the 1620s in what's now Massachusetts, uh, people probably did consume turkey. It's a, a bird that's native to North America. They also consumed other things that we do not generally associate with Thanksgiving, like eels, um, venison. Ven Some people might have venison, but it's it's probably not that common different kinds of fish. The other traditional Thanksgiving foods like cranberry and pumpkin, those are also native North American ingredients. So that's something that's been, you know, at least symbolically really consistent, this idea of we're eating something that's that's indigenous to the Americas. And they ate it because it was there and they could get it, I guess. Exactly, then, yeah. yeah. And Chef Kurt, when we talked mm -hmm. about a decade ago, like I said, you were said we were trending towards more side dishes and yeah. a lot of different dishes, not so much one big bird. Are we yeah. continuing? And what what are the trends today? I, I think there's an there's a bit of an evolution in that, right? And I still believe that sides are where it's at, and and you know it isn't necessarily just going to be turkey. You know, we had the bad um, avian flu that really struck the turkey population hard for a couple of years and so people had to move away from that because you didn't want to spend 70 80 100 dollars for a turkey and maybe it wasn't that extreme but it was a lot more than what you would normally spend so people looked to other proteins that they could cook for a large group and everybody could enjoy and ham's usually one of those that's an easy one or a beef roast of sorts um, but i think one of the things you're starting to see is um, vegetables becoming part of the sides, multiple vegetables, instead of just it being green bean casserole or like sweet potatoes that have uh, a pile of maple syrup on it. We're looking at different ways to 
introduce those vegetables. Maybe it's a, a fondant sweet potato that's then got a compound butter on top of it. And I, I also see a lot of world flavors being brought into things. So it isn't your just your traditional thyme, sage, butter kind of profile. Now you're, now you're bringing in, you know, chili crunch and you're bringing in maybe goji john or sriracha or uh, vadavan or some curry or garam masala. And, and because you can throw a little accent of those flavors into a vegetable and it can just bring it like elevate it to a whole nother level. And Cheryl, I'm wondering, why do you think it's important that we know more about where our food comes from? I'm thinking right now that I'd like to have Thanksgiving at yeah. Chef Kurt's house. <laughs> so what we see in surveys that we've done at Michigan State, where we've done nationally representative uh, polls on what people understand about the food system, what we see over and over is the answer is very little. So we see that usually more than half of Americans say they rarely or never think about where their food comes from or how it impacts their environment or their health. Now, the thing is, these agricultural practices that provide us with these grand masala turkey dishes that we just heard about, you know, they, they sustain our world. And the food system is becoming more strained because of factors like climate change, uh, because we don't always have the resources that we've had in the past to produce the amount of food in the places that we traditionally have. And so as more of us understand about our food, what's going on with our food system, more of us understand uh, the, the processes involved, not just the techniques, but how water and energy and all of these other uh, resources combine to create the bounty of the food that we enjoy and we've come to expect will land on our plate, uh, we can appreciate how we need to change our own path, uh, whether that's through more efficient means of producing energy, more efficient means of moving water. Um, all of these different parts of the climate story and the food story really are interwoven together in ways we usually don't see. So all this to say, I think it's really important that more of us think about where our food comes from because ultimately we'll be able to live a lot more sustainably and comfortably uh, when we get a little bit more knowledgeable about what we eat. And there's at least some question, right? Can we feed the 10 billion people that are expected to be on the planet in the you know mid-century? And the truth is we can. So it's, it's often, um, people often say, oh, we're not going to have enough food. There's more and more and more people. But it has a lot to do with how we use resources and what we do on a per capita basis. And so even just thinking about the way we consume energy, you know, the average American consumes, per capita, consumes twice as much energy as the average person living in Europe, who consumes twice as much energy as the average person living in China. So we're not all having the same impact. And what we know is, or at least what scientists are telling us, is that we can be a lot more efficient and a lot less wasteful and make sure there's more of what we have to go around. And expound on that one of the huge issues that we've talked about before is the waste. I think it's upwards to 30 or 40 percent. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up, Russ, because mm -hmm. as you know, I could talk about food waste for hours. <laughs> um, so the thing is, you know, at a time when we should be, uh, when we should be as careful as we possibly can be, with our food system, with our natural resources, you know, we are throwing away between one third and one half of the food that we produce. And that's wild. Can you consider all of the water we're wasting, all the energy we're wasting, all of the carbon emissions, the, the greenhouse gases we're producing in the process to produce food that ultimately gets tossed. And along the way, you're also, 
you know, refrigerating the food, storing the food, harvesting the food. You're putting all of this energy and effort into creating stuff that nobody ever eats. So at a point at which we're all thinking we have to innovate and and uh, create new technologies to combat climate change, well, food waste is sitting right in front of us, literally. And there's so much we can do now to make sure what we have goes even further and also, at the same time, serves to feed food insecure communities, right? Like if we're a little bit better about, I don't know, not wasting as much through our buffet culture. Like buffets are a little bit odd. No offense if you love no, buffets, Chef Kurt. A, no, no. <laughs> um, but, but we have these practices that we've come to think are normal. And, and just as Helen was saying, there's a lot we do with food right now in 2023 that isn't traditionally part of how people have had relationships with food before. So we can distribute it better, we can waste less, and we can do a lot more for ourselves and the planet. You know, and, and to kind of jump in a little bit on that, and one of the things that I think, unfortunately, sometimes people, they, they like have this association with food, like, oh, I went out to this restaurant, it was really, really good. I'm like, oh, well, what was great about it? Oh, the portion was huge. And it's like, they, they don't even eat the whole thing. And maybe it gets wasted, maybe it doesn't. But, but you know, somehow that association of this large portion needs to, we need to move past that and, and maybe just focus on having several bites that are just absolutely amazing. And I think if we look at also like actual ingredients, the satiation, you know, like how you, you know, you feel full, right? Um, the when you eat more natural ingredients and when you put those items into your body um, instead of something that's highly highly processed you can feel a lot fuller with less mm -hmm. it's it's even possible to waste food by eating it when you don't need it i mean i i worked in a bakery in high school and there was a, you know a lot of food being thrown out and i would think to myself oh i can't let this go to waste let me eat it and, and day after day, I'd be eating, you know, in this really kind of, you know, teenage righteous attempt to prevent food waste. <laughs> and I realized after a couple of weeks, I was wasting it in a sense. I didn't need all this food that I was eating. I was trying to eat more and more. And, you know, these big portions, even if someone finishes a huge portion, that's not necessarily not going to waste if, if they didn't if they didn't need it. And I'm not saying that people should get by on a survival ration right. or anything like that. But Americans, you know, on average, eat much more than we need. And that's that's something else that, you know, would benefit not just the environment, but also our bodies. Absolutely. And I'll just add to that because there's that component, but also what you talked about, working in a bakery, seeing all the food that's going to waste. When we think about expiration dates or more often, quote, sell-by dates or even use-by dates, those are not, for the most part, a scientifically rigorous process that determines when our food spoils. So we are tossing so many perfectly fine ingredients, perfectly fine staples that we depend on just because they're past a pretty arbitrary date. Food safety is extremely important. We can talk about that too. Yeah. <laughs> but for a lot of these products that have a, a random date, a seemingly random date stamped on them, um, that's not necessarily an indication that that product has gone bad. And when you look at how that scales up to the restaurant community, to the, to the grocery store community, they are tossing all sorts, like literally tons of food that is perfectly fine to eat. Mm-hmm. And Kurt, Cheryl led us beautifully into food safety. Yeah. <laughs> I got a feeling this time of year there's probably people maybe helping in the kitchen that don't, maybe other times. But it can't yeah. hurt to remind first um, some, like when you're preparing and keeping things safe, what are some tips? Yeah, wash your hands. Yeah. <laughs> wash your hands, wash your hands. Sanitize the area, right? Um, think about raw ingredients. 
Um, if you're going to do some vegetable prep, I always say get the vegetable prep done ahead. Or if you're going to prep the bird and do what you got to do with the bird or whatever raw proteins you're using, do that, get that in the oven, get it started, whether it's going on your grill or your smoker, or if you're going to deep fry it, be careful. Um, <laughs> but, but whatever that is, then take like not even like two minutes and get some disinfectant out and wipe down everything, not just where the bird was. Get rid of that cutting board, wash it down, disinfect it, sanitize it, clean it, and then just restart. It takes two, three minutes, and it's going to keep everybody safe, for lack of it. Yeah, it's just you just don't want to risk it. You just and, don't. Yeah, and you know, Cheryl talked about buffets. The other thing is, don't this stuff can't sit out, and you can graze for not very yeah. long as as long as people think, right? Yeah, you know, I I I I try to not keep things out, and then when you're gonna put stuff away, make sure you're putting it away the right way too. So if you can keep it hot, have your meal, um, and then we want to cool it down as fast as we possibly can. And whether that, you know, pending weather, you know, we're in Michigan, it could be twenty degrees or it could be fifty. We don't know. Um, it's nice when it's 20 because we have an outdoor refrigerator. Um, but you, you want to get that food. So get it in as, as thin a layer as possible. Um, or if it's in a soup, get it into a bigger container. So the surface area is greater mm. instead of in a really small container where it's filled all the way up because it's going to take longer for that soup to cool down and that, and then don't lit it right away. Anything that's hot make sure it's vented because what can happen is is that moisture can build up inside that bag or inside that container and you have the potential for a foodborne illness. And haven't you said before though don't put stuff like really hot right in. Let it no. cool down somewhat. Yeah. Don't just put something blazing hot in the fridge right away. Right. Yeah, please just yeah, because then it's gonna raise the temperature in the fridge that much more too. So, you know, it's it's kind of like a staged thing. Like get everything, all right, everybody's done eating. We got our two, two and a half hours of grazing, we're done, into bags or containers, it sits out, and it's probably room temp by that point anyway. Then it can go into the fridge. And people love their leftovers at the holiday oh, season. Please, what are please, what are some how long that. can we keep stuff, you know? Uh, after it's been cooked, I, my rule of thumb is trying no more than four days. It's probably, you know, three, four days. It doesn't last longer than that in my house, but in others. And if you're not sure, hedge on the side of, oh, I got, I, I made this huge batch of stuffing and now I got some left over. You can get a Ziploc bag. I mean, food savers are cheap nowadays. Put it in a food saver, vacuum seal it, throw it in the freezer, label it, date it. And then when you want some stuffing, another, you know, week or two later, pull it out, thaw it, and eat it up. And you're going to be a lot safer that way. How long in the freezer, though, even? There's a limit. Again, probably. yeah. I mean, you know, a couple of months. And the vacuum sealers actually do a much better job because, again, you, you, don't, you, you don't have air gaps um, or a lot less of an air gap. And so you don't have the ability for... What's, what would be called freezer burn, or you get that protein starting to deteriorate literally in the freezer because at that cold temperature, the yeah. protein structure just starts to break down. 
And Helen, you were talking about how our eating has evolved. And I think your latest project is about how picky kids are eating. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, my my, um, my next book is a history of children's picky eating. And what's so interesting. <laughs> Cheryl's perked up yeah. her ears. <laughs> and of course, you know, today picky eaters are absolutely everywhere. Yeah. Um, but what is so fascinating is that they weren't in the past. If you go back to the 19th century, Americans talked about children being childish eaters. And what they meant by that in the 19th century was that children were so greedy and so curious and so so indiscriminating. Unlike adults, they saw adults as being pickier, as being more refined, having the maturity to make choices and to make distinctions between different foods. Children in the 19th century, by all accounts, ate happily and curiously. You know, that has to do with a lot of different factors, the evolution of um, pickier children today. And one of the fascinating things is that we see it spreading globally since, you know, even in the 1960s, anthropologists reported from around the world on children eating, happily eating what adults were eating, whether it was, um, you know, meat from animals that we wouldn't think of to eat ourselves or a huge variety of vegetables or grains um, or, or even spicy things or fermented things. Um, but now we see childhood pickiness rising around the world. We also see childhood obesity rising around the world. These things are not the same, but um, I think they both have to do with the industrialization of our food supply, the instant availability of hyperpalatable food that trains children and also trains adults to to really want these you know super sweet, salty, savory, fatty, delicious foods um, that that aren't really what what it's going to be good for us in the long run. And you know, we were all talking about sustainability before we were recording. Just mm -hmm. your thoughts on sustainability and food and how they relate together. Uh, I guess for me, you know, one of the things that I've been seeing is, you know, we can call it, you know, the buzzword for a long time was farm to table. But I think what the chefs are trying to do is just use local ingredients. A and then when it's not in season, figure out a way, you know, many, many years ago, we had fermentation, we had the, the drying process, we had a way to preserve products so you might not be able to get a fresh fig all year round or a fresh apricot all year round but you can do things to those when you harvest them we're going to have fresh apricots so you know when we look at michigan let's say we're going to have cherries on the menu here 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 and here doesn't mean you can't have cherries on all year round but you're just not going to have them in a fresh mode you can freeze them you can dehydrate them you know you can preserve them you can dry them. There are so many other ways. So then your menu can flex to the seasons and look at seasonality. You know, when peaches are in season and tomatoes might not be in season, put a peach in there instead of a tomato because surprisingly it actually works. Um, in, in looking at that from a local standpoint. And Cheryl, sustainability and food, what comes to mind? Oh, my brain is going a million different directions yeah. <laughs> with what Chef Kurt just said. But I like that you just brought up, Chef Kurt just brought up, um, that, that local is good, but local doesn't always necessarily mean more sustainable. So it has to do with time of year, season, even latitude, you know, all these other factors. The way you cook it yourself. I mean, the you can get you local it. carrots, but if you blast a couple of local carrots in a 400-degree oven, that's not necessarily more sustainable than 
the carrots that arrived on a big steamer with mm-hmm. tons of other carrots that you have raw. I mean, it's, it's actually quite complicated. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the emissions from all the different aspects of our food system, the transportation piece is, is a lot smaller mm-hmm. than many of us consider. Mm-hmm. What's huge is land use changes. So if you're clearing a whole old growth forest for something, for some use, uh, then you're losing all sorts of what you had there that was like a great place where you could do, you know, where you could be capturing carbon. Carbon, And something that I've been spending a little more time thinking about lately, which I think touches on all of this, is soil structure. When we think about food, we don't often think about soil very much. But if a, if, if a farm, if the soil on a farm has been tilled and tilled and tilled and treated with all sorts of chemicals, it no longer has the structure to hold water, to support a root system, to keep that space very, very fertile, and ultimately also to trap carbon and to do all these great things. But farmers know that there's different ways we can treat our soil. So when we're thinking about kind of the start of where we're going to grow and fertilize and harvest our, our food, we can start from the soil um, where we lose a, a ton of what we need to produce the food that we depend on. Yeah, it makes me think about I got a chance to visit some, uh, I got to go to Saskatchewan and, and uh, visit some lentil farmers and talk about what is and about the soil erosion that can happen if you're not careful in how you're rotating crops. Mm-hmm. And to hear, you know, go to the, I got a chance just recently in um, September to visit the Salinas Valley which is kind of like the salad bowl capital of the world, but but looking at crop rotation so that the, the amount of soil depth and the nutrient-dense soil is kept at a very, the deepest level possible, obviously, but you can't plant the exact same crop year after year after year and expect things to work out correctly. You have to, you know, some are going to pull more nutrients out, some are going to put other in, and you just have that crop rotation so that you can keep the quality of that soil as high as possible. And Helen, does sustainability figure into your research at all? Yeah, well, it figures more into my teaching. I teach a lot about sustainability and modern food systems. And I think food is absolutely at the center of what we're all going to have to figure out moving further into this century. I think it's, it's not... It's not the only thing that's important to think about, but boy, it's it's one of the most important things. And then building on something that Helen started with, uh, you were talking about food as a kind of universal language, and we've all been describing food as something that brings us together. Um, an area that we haven't touched on, but I feel like is perfect with the holidays coming up, is something I've been a little more focused on called food diplomacy, and there's lots of ways into that. But because food brings people together, there are all, sor- uh, all sorts of efforts that are, I've, I've been working with and I've been learning about. Um, around the world bringing different refugees together to share and cook and literally break bread together. Um, And and I think it's more than just kind of goodwill or or wishful thinking. When we start to understand each other and we sit together, we have a meal around a table, it's a chance to connect on such an important human level that it gives me hope that, you know, maybe we can solve some of these great big conflicts we're thinking about. Yeah. I mean, the the bad news, uh, you know, that we saw in the 20th century is that when you have these you know, environmentally degrading farming practices that are linked to, you know, huge and wasteful transportation structures that are linked to the industrialization of diets that are linked to really poor health outcomes and bad quality of life for people. These are all these kind of vicious cycles. But the good news is that if you can reverse some of them, you can really start these virtuous cycles where eating that is better ecologically, is better for our bodies, can be better for for small farmers. Uh, All of these things are also linked in a positive sense. So it gives me a lot of hope. And Kurt, 
talk about sustainability in your new role at Gordon Food <laughs> Services. You were talking about that before, too, as, as the corporate executive chef. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, my job within Gordon Food Services is always changing, but very focused on trends and looking at it, what's going on. But I think it's pretty neat, the company that I work for, um, that sustainability piece is really important. And the diversity factor is also really important with diverse suppliers um, and looking at um, the carbon emissions and trying to track you know, that's something that's going to be coming in the near future. You're going to have to be able to <coughs> produce and look at all of the numbers. Um, you know, where's the product shipping from and, and does it make sense? And just because it's the cheapest doesn't necessarily mean that's the right way to go. Um, and then supporting as much, obviously, that idea of local, but also then supporting as, as much as we can within certain areas. We've got a lot of relationships across the U.S. with um, not just maybe a supplier, let's say, from a, a vegetable or a protein standpoint, but maybe there's a product that, like, every everybody water. So it's that giving back to people that don't have clean water in the world. Um and then helping that company get going and support that company and that mission. And it's a boxed water. So, again, you're looking at there's no plastics involved and things like that. And, you know, Kurt, we were talking about some, some of the food trends earlier. Mm -hmm. Are there a couple of things you might just recommend if people want to try something different this holiday season? Well, pimento cheese corn muffins sure seem to we be. We can good. vouch for those. <laughs> those are really good. Big thumbs yeah. up. <laughs> I, you know, I think you're looking at, you know, you're taking the idea of comfort food and maybe giving it a little bit of a twist or a zap. And, you know, something as simple, you know, I've, I like the, the term swicy. Um, it is a word. Uh, and it's something that's been around for a long time, right? We've all had red hots when we were kids. So um, that, that sweet and spicy element. So you can... I mean, I, I do a, a grilled, a really hard griddled zucchini. So it gets, you know, super, super caramelized, browned, and then you turn it over um, and a little bit of hot honey over it, and my kids can't stop eating it. So it's an easy vegetable to produce um, with just a little bit of, of fun. You know, again, you know, that, that world flavor, dip, dip your toe into it a little bit. Be okay with trying Brussels sprouts and roasting them and then taking something like maple syrup that's right here in Michigan and maybe putting it with something that's spicy like a samba olite that's from, uh, you know, over in Southeast Asia. Or if you don't want to go quite that way, you can, you know, if you have sriracha or, you know, use what you have in your fridge too. Don't sit there and feel like you have to go out and buy these five or ten other ingredients because somebody said to. Um, if you happen to have someone that has some local honey, you can add a hot sauce to it. You know, the, the, the Google machines that we have in the interweb are, are good and bad, right? They, they can get you into a direction or, and, um, and they can at least inform you or get you into hopefully the right place for an idea. Yeah. Well, I hope we've given listeners a lot to think about as when it comes to food. I know I've thought about some new things today, but let me just ask you to leave us with some final thoughts related to our conversation, Helen. I'm just, you know, I'm excited to get into the holidays myself. It's it's just such a great time to be with family. It's, you know, a time to I think reflect on 
you know, the big issues that we've talked about today with food, but also just about, you know, I think more and more it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hard world out there. And, and these times where we can sort of, you know, have this haven with our families, that's, that's really important. Here, here. Kurt? Yeah, I can't say that enough. You know, family means the world to me. And so it's, it's always a good time. Sometimes it can be hard. Um, but again, that, that idea of food brings people together and maybe to touch on that, I just had this thought about the picky eater thing. And I think one of the things you're seeing is people playing with these different flavors, but giving them to an, people in a way that it's relatable. So whether it's as a pizza or as a taco or as a sandwich. So it's it's way more identifiable. Mm. Approachable. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I, it's a taco. It's every, you know, tacos delicious. How is it not? <laughs> um, <laughs> so you could put grilled octopus in there and you can sneak that in there maybe um or whatever those in, those oddball ingredients might be so it's it's kind of mm-hmm. neat to see how that is shifting in things and cheryl how about you well this conversation has gotten me really excited about the holidays and <laughs> there's so many coming up not just thanksgiving right uh, and on a final note i'll just say i wish everyone listening a very happy thanksgiving if you celebrate and you can keep in mind that benjamin franklin's favorite bird was the turkey <laughs> All right. Well, that was Cheryl Kirschenbaum, host of PBS's Serving Up Science. Chef Kurt Kwiatkowski is the corporate executive chef at Gordon Food Services, and Helen Veit is an associate professor of history here at Michigan State University. Thank you all for talking food with me today. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.